Uh, good morning, church. Everybody doing well today? All right. I love it. You can turn in your Bibles to Joshua chapter 8. And you know, uh, when you have a video like we just showed, uh, and you're putting together a worship service like this morning, it's hard to know quite where to put it. And sometimes it goes between baptism and the reading of God's Word, and you just got to own it, right? So, you know, hopefully that helps your worship today. Where uh, It is Soccer Night's kickoff Sunday. This is in part why we have this video going, why I'm wearing the Soccer Night's shirt from last year. Any kids in here with some Soccer Night shirts on? We got a few. They don't want to admit it, right? There's, why are you pointing me out? Uh, but if you are unfamiliar with Soccer Nights, it is our uh, outreach in the spring to our community through the sport of soccer. We do four nights in May, uh, May 20th through 23rd. And uh, last year we had 150, over 150 kids participate, and about half of those were from Open Door, which means half were from our community, other churches. But they're coming, and not only are we having a good time uh, on the soccer field, but we're also every night communicating the gospel and inviting them to consider Open Door and to consider Christ. So if you would like to participate in that, there'll be some cards in the lobby when you leave. Uh, you can scan the QR code on the table outside um, and you can volunteer to be a part of that. We need about 80 volunteers to make it happen and we're doing great so far, but we wanna continue that. Uh, so looking forward to having you join us at Soccer Nights. All right, last week we were in Joshua 7. Uh, for those of you who are visiting today, my name is Jay Viverka. I'm the next-gen pastor, which is why I get to talk about things like soccer nights. And uh, it's my joy to lead our time on the Word. Last week in Joshua 7, Pastor Dwayne uh, led us, and uh, it, it's kind of a sobering text, right? It's a, it's a story of failure for Israel. They uh, go to attack the city of Ai, Ai, and they drive them back, and they, there's loss of life. And then we find out that there's this man named Achan who is... Uh, sinfully taken from the city of Jericho. And this is in part why Israel failed at the Battle of Ai. And, and Achan is judged along with his family and all of his possessions. It's, it's, it's weighty, right? And it, it reveals to us this, the seriousness of our sin and how God takes that seriously. But I was encouraged at the end of the service, and I hope you were by what Pastor Dwayne said when he was talking about Christ. And he said this, because... Because of the greater grace of Jesus Christ, we do not have to suffer the consequences of our disobedience and defeat. Because of the greater grace of Jesus Christ, we do not have to suffer the consequences of our disobedience and defeat. Praise God for that. And today, we want to talk about how we respond now after failure. What does it look like to move forward? How should we, as the people of God, respond after confession, after repentance, what does a renewed commitment to God look like? Can you remember the first time you felt failure? Like really felt a failure. You felt the weight of, of maybe letting someone down or, or maybe the consequences of not completing a goal or a task. Uh, some of you know that when I was in high school, I grew up in New Jersey and uh, I was a member of the bowling team. Okay, and uh, I was a pretty decent bowler in high school. I had a pretty good junior year, and coming into my senior year, I was team captain of the bowling team, which, for those of you from the South, it would sort of be like the captain of the bass fishing team, okay? It's, it's just a little bit on the fringes, but there you feel a little bit also like, hey, all right. So 
I did, however, realize that there was a line that I would cross if I got a letterman's jacket. So I avoided the letterman's jacket. Part of that was because I was 5'10 and 115 pounds, and you can't get a letterman's jacket that's small enough to, to look appropriate on someone of that build. Okay, so, so I was going into my senior year, and it was the first time I had an opportunity to lead. I was the captain, right? I had a good junior year. There were high expectations for me coming into my senior year. Our team was supposed to be good, and we, we got ready for our first tournament. And we went and uh, we started bowling and, and I just stunk it up that day. I was terrible. Like, I felt like I had been bowling for like two days at that point. Like, I, like, I just felt like, man, everything is going wrong and, and my frustration began to build. And it came, it started to come out of, my frustration started to come out of my mouth. And the things started being thrown and kicked and I was frustrated and I was angry and I was embarrassing. And I was embarrassed for myself. I was embarrassed for my parents, for my team. No one wanted to sit next to me on the bus, right? Like I rode back to our school and everyone was like, all right, I'm just gonna, yeah, I'll go sit next to the bathroom on this charter bus rather than sit next to that guy. And by, I mean, by God's grace, I had a very kind coach who was a shop teacher. I don't know that you put all those things together, but he was a coach, a shop teacher, and he was very kind. And he invited me into his classroom the next week, didn't really invite me, he said, come to my classroom. And we had an honest conversation and he encouraged me and he helped me to understand what it looked like to, to lead and what the weight of that responsibility meant and what it didn't mean and how I could kind of take steps forward. All of us have failed at one time or another in our lives and in much greater ways than not excelling in a skill or some kind of sport. All of us have sinned, right? We've all failed to obey God. We failed to to love our spouse as we should, or we fail to love our kids as we should. Maybe we fail to love a stranger as we should. One of the great tragedies of our age is how people have, how our culture has defined success and failure apart from God. And they've been subsequently crushed under the weight of their failure. But being apart from God, they have no means by which to remove the weight and to be free from it. They've said, this is what success looks like. This is what failure looks like. When failure comes, they're crushed by the weight and there's no way to be free from it. Our kids, they feel the weight of failure under their parents' expectations. I was at a basketball game this last week for our nine-year-old. We were up by one point. It was the fourth quarter and uh, we fouled them. We fouled the other team. There's, there was a couple of minutes left, which uh, when you're in nine-year-old basketball, a couple of minutes is like, like the, you might not get any more points. So we fouled them and this kid went to the line and the whole gym is quiet. Everyone's just kind of taking it in. He, the kid steps to the line and you hear his dad from the bleachers. No pressure, son. It's just the game on the line. I'm like, what? It's not even like AAU, this is rec league we're talking about. And this whole dad's whatever was wrapped up in this kid making these free throws. And so the most disturbing part to me was the other dads around and going, that's how you teach him, that's right. I'm like, stop. Kid clangs both of them, misses them both. We go on to win and I'm thinking, man, what kind of weight was that kid carrying at the free throw line? Like the whole thing is on my shoulders right now. Kids feel the weight of the a way to failure under their parents' expectations. Students feel the weight 
of failing to meet the expectations of their peers, not only on the halls of their high school, but in the images on their Instagram. Adults, we're not immune to this. We've felt the weight of failure. As more and more adults go into greater and greater debt to try to present some kind of lifestyle that will be approved by the wider culture or max out their calendars to feel some sense of worth or influence. In Joshua 8, we're going to see how Israel responds to their failure. And there's going to be a word for us on how we respond to our own failures in this life. So let's read Joshua. We're going to just read the the first uh, two verses of the chapter, and then I'm going to pray, and we'll look at this text together. Joshua 8, verse 1. The Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid or discouraged. Take all the troops with you and go attack Ai. Look, I have handed over to you the king of Ai, his people, city, and land. Treat Ai and its king as you did Jericho and its king, except that you may plunder its spoil and livestock for yourselves. Set an ambush behind the city. Let's pray. Lord, we've come into this room today as imperfect and broken people. All of us have felt the weight and the consequence of failure. Lord, some of us have walked into this room feeling that weight in real time through a word that was spoken on the way here or remembering an action that happened this past week. Lord, we, we need your help. We need you to, to help us to fix our eyes on Christ today. We need you to help us to find our hope and our freedom in the gospel. And we need your spirit now as we open your word to work in our hearts and our minds to transform us into your likeness. So guide us and grow us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, these are going to go up on the screen. We'll go through them very quickly. They'll come back up later. So if you're a note taker, don't, don't lose your mind if you don't get them down right at the beginning. Okay, so we're going to see four things in the text today. First, we're going to see the penalty of God is satisfied. We're going to see first that the penalty of God has been satisfied. But next, we're going to see the promise of God, that it is sure. The promise of God is sure. Then we're going to see the power of God is sufficient, sufficient in the battle. And lastly, we're going to see that the precepts of God are sacred. Precepts of God are sacred. So first, the penalty of God is satisfied. So look at this. I actually want us to jump back into the very end of chapter Seven, And so if you will look at verse 26 with me, and here it's talking about Achan. It says, and raised over him, Achan, a large, and they raised over him a large pile of rocks that remains still today. Then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore, that place is called the Valley of Achor, or trouble, still today. Again, the, uh, chapter seven, we have Achan. And he's, he's taken these, uh, these objects and these things that were designated for destruction. He's hidden them. Uh, can't hide things from God, right? So, so, so God calls out Achan from the tribe of Judah, and he's judged. He's guilty. He and his family are stoned and burned, and then he's buried under a pile of rocks. But what we need to understand is what happens in verse 26 is that the Lord declares that his burning anger has been turned away. The Lord turned from his burning anger. His penalty has been satisfied. The wrath of God has been satisfied. The sin of Israel has been dealt with. 
And in chapter 8, verse 1, we see God now speaking again to Joshua. And this should sound a little bit familiar. He says to Joshua there in verse 1, do not be afraid and do not be discouraged. Now, if you remember Joshua chapter 1, verse 9, he's going to tell Joshua, be strong and courageous. Now, Joshua had been with Moses for many years. He was uh, regarded by most as the, the leader of Israel's army. When there was a battle to fight, Joshua was the one that they turned to to lead it. But now Moses has died, right? And Joshua is stepping into his role as the leader of Israel. Those are some big shoes to fill. And Joshua, no matter how confident he was as a military leader, I'm sure felt some trepidation stepping in as the leader of Israel. And so God encourages him in chapter one to be strong and to be courageous and then reminds him that he's going to be with him. And the first six, chapter, six chapters of Joshua, where they go really according to plan. The people are listening to Joshua. God, God elevates him in the eyes of the people and they, they respond to his word. He leads them to cross the Jordan River in a miraculous way, much like Moses led Israel to cross the Red Sea in a miraculous way. He leads them in this miraculous military victory over the city of Jericho, where Everyone obeys Joshua. Like the most impressive thing about that to me is that no one talked the whole way around the wall. Like I always like, there must not have been any kids in that line. Uh, but they, they had this victory and everything seems to be going according to plan. And then we have Joshua 7. And it's Joshua's first taste of failure. And I think he's feeling the weight of that. And God knows that. And God comes to him in verse one and he, he tells him, Stop being afraid, Joshua. Stop being discouraged, Joshua. Be strong, Joshua. Be courageous, Joshua. I am with you. And he reminds him there that in the upcoming battle, he is going to give the city over to Joshua. You see, he needed to be reminded of God's past faithfulness. He needed to be reminded that the sin had been dealt with, and now he calls him to move forward. After we experience a failure, after we've sinned against God or against someone else, and we, and we repent of that sin, and we come to God, we have to remember that God has already dealt with it at the cross. You have to remember it's already been dealt with. And I know that there's too many of us that continue to walk around with that weight of sin and shame upon our shoulders, not truly trusting in Christ and in the work that he has done on our behalf. To fully trust in Jesus is to fully receive the gift of a cleansed conscience, free from guilt and shame. 1 John 1, 9 reminds us, right? He says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Maybe you're here this morning, you walked in and you're still carrying around a little bit of weight from something that happened this week. Maybe you need to go to the Lord. Maybe you haven't done that yet. But if you have, know that it has been taken care of. It has been dealt with. And you now can walk in the freedom and in the forgiveness of the gospel. So he says there in, in verse one, I've handed over to you the king, his people, his city, and his land. And then he says to treat Ai and its king as they did Jericho, except they get to plunder its spoil and livestock for themselves. And then he says this at the very end of verse two, 
set an ambush behind the city. Now, we don't have time to get into uh, the theology of an ambush. Uh, you could read that and go, well, now is God commanding Joshua to be deceptive, to lie? What does that look like? I woke up thinking about this this morning. <laughs> like, what's, what's going on here? And there's some very smart people, much smarter than myself, who have wrestled with this question, and you can find their answers online and all that kind of jazz. And, and, and it's an important question for us, not that we're going to spend a lot of time on it, but because next week in Joshua 9, the Gibeonites are going to deceive the Israelites. So what's going on in chapter 9 that isn't going on in chapter 8 with God? And where most people seem to land is that they'll say, you know, the Gibeonites, they came and they presented something as, as a falsehood. Like they, they said something and came to the Israelites and said, this is who we are, when really that isn't who they were. But the withholding of information, which is what's happening here in chapter 8, is distinct from that action. And so we have lots of examples in the scriptures that we won't go to of, of, of times when God has maybe withheld information. And he's not sitting in that moment. He's not deceiving in that moment. So he's instructing Joshua then to set up this, this ambush. What is going to happen then in the, in the verses that, that are to follow? So next we're going to see not only that the penalty has been satisfied, but also that the promise of God is sure. The promise of God is sure. Again, he tells Joshua that he's going to give the city into their hands, not only the city, but the king and the people and the land. He says there to look and to behold, and later Joshua is actually going to use the same word when he's talking to the people. God is calling Joshua to faith, to trusting that God's promises are, in fact, sure. And he goes on to give some instruction, Joshua does, on how the city and the king should be dealt with and a strategy for victory. And let's read those in chapter 8, verses 3 through 9. If you would follow along with me, it says, So Joshua and all the troops set out to attack Ai. Joshua selected 30,000 of his best soldiers and sent them out at night. He commanded them, pay attention. Lie in ambush behind the city, not too far from it, and all of you be ready. Then I and all the people who are with me will approach the city. And when they come out against us, as they did the first time, we will flee from them. They will come after us until we've drawn them away from the city, for they will say they are fleeing from us as before. And while we are fleeing from them, you are to come out of your ambush and seize the city. The Lord, your God, will hand it over to you. After taking the city, set it on fire. Follow the Lord's command. See that you do as I have ordered you. So Joshua sent them out, and they went to the ambush site and waited between Bethel and Ai to the west of Ai. But he spent that night with the troops. Okay, so Joshua is, is communicating two key things that God has already told Joshua. First, that the city is going to be given to them, and secondly, there's going to be an ambush. Okay, God sort of says it generally. Joshua kind of explains the battle plan in more detail. And what is interesting about these verses is that we see that God and Joshua are speaking with one voice. God and his servant are speaking with one voice. Not only do they both call, uh, like God calls Joshua to look, and then Joshua tells the army, hey, look, listen, pay attention. But in verse 8, he says, follow the Lord's command, see that you do as I have ordered you. Joshua is stepping into this role and speaking with one voice with the Lord. And Joshua fills in the details, right? He says, 
He's, it says he's going to take 30,000 of his best soldiers. Now, if you read verses 11 through 13, 10 through 13, uh, you're going to come away with some questions. Well, was it, did 30,000 go in ambush? Did 5,000 go in ambush? What's the, what's the deal here? And, and we're not, again, we can't go into great detail on that, but here's what I think is going on. Other commentators have, have talked through this, but they think 11 through 13 is a little bit of a summary of what's come earlier. And so what I think is happening is Joshua's got this army. He's got 30,000 of his best soldiers. Do you remember how many he took in chapter 7? They took in chapter 7? 3,000. So we have a force that's 10 times the size. And not only are they bigger, but they're better. He gets the best. Remember how casually they treated AI in chapter 7? They were like, oh, so let's grab a few folks ahead up there and the city will fall and we'll move on with our day. Here we have a force of 30,000 of his best soldiers. And they go up and then he takes 5,000 of those soldiers and he tells them to go and weigh in ambush on the west side of the city. So AI is situated probably facing east or north. Joshua is going to take 25,000 men and go to the north side and basically present themselves before the city and say, hey, we're here, we're here for battle, while these 5,000 go to the west side and wait in ambush. And so that's what happens in verse 13. Joshua goes north, the ambush goes west. And in and 14 through 17, we see that the king takes note. He notices Joshua, sees them out there, he sees the force, and he responds just like he did last time. They fled from us last time. They're going to flee from us again. And so they look for a, 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 a battle location. It says uh, towards the Arabah, which is east of the city. So if you can think about it geographically, the king is coming out and he wants to battle facing towards the east. The ambush is behind him on the west, right? So they're positioned properly. And they begin this battle. And Joshua, like he says, they're, they're going to pretend to retreat. He and his 25,000 are going to pretend to retreat. And, and the people of Ai, the, the soldiers of Ai, and also it's going to say later Bethel also participates in this. So you got these two cities that are kind of like, they're like uh, St. Paul and Minneapolis, right? They're just next to each other. They're going to go and they're going to battle against Israel. And it says that they're led away. They're led away from the city. God is orchestrating his plan. And the promise of God is sure. Israel is operating from a place of confidence because God has said, I am giving you the city. But next we're going to see not only that the promise of God is sure, but we're going to see that the power of God is sufficient. And we see that in verse 18. So if you would turn to, turn to verse 18 with me. And let's read together. It says this, Then the Lord said to Joshua, Now the last time the Lord came to Joshua was verse 1. He comes to him now again in verse 18. The Lord said to Joshua, hold out the javelin in your hand toward Ai, for I will hand the city over to you. So Joshua held out his javelin toward it. And when he held out his hand, the men in ambush rose quickly from their position. They ran, entered the city, captured it, and immediately set it on fire. Now, when I read these verses, there are two stories that come to mind. Two stories from the book of Exodus that come to mind. The first was found in Exodus 17. We're not going to turn there, but that is the battle that Joshua leads against the Amalekites. And what's unique about that battle is that Moses, he, he, he gets Joshua all squared away. He says, all right, you're going to go battle them. I'm going to go sit up on this hill. I'm taking Aaron and her with me. And we're going to be up there. 
And the text tells us that God says, now Moses, extend your hand with the staff in it. The text says he, he does that. And when he has his hand extended, the Israelites are winning the battle, right? They're advancing, they're having favor, they're winning the battle. But it says, as most of us would get tired, and Moses was pretty old at this point, he's getting tired, and so his hand's coming down. And when his hand comes down, the Amalekites advance, and they're winning the battle. Hand goes up, Israel, down, Amalekites. Well, Aaron and her, they're trying to troubleshoot this whole thing, right? And they're like, all right, Moses, sit down on this rock. We're going to stand next to you. We'll hold your arm on either side so your hands can stay up. And Israel wins the battle. His hand is extended with his staff, and God gives the victory. Three chapters earlier in Exodus 14, Israel is backed up against the Red Sea. Egypt is pursuing them. Everyone's freaking out. They don't know what they're going to do. And God again comes to Moses and he says, Moses, I want you to step to the edge of the water and I want you to grab your staff and I want you to extend your hand. And when you extend your hand, the sea is going to part and Israel is going to cross on dry land. So this is what we see happening. Moses steps, he grabs the staff, he extends his hand and the power of God moves the water so Israel can cross over on dry land. And then when they get to the other side, what happens? God comes to him again and says, okay, Moses, it's time to put the water back. Grab your staff, extend your hand. And he does, and the water comes back. And what happens? Egypt is completely destroyed. The army of Egypt is completely wiped out. Now with those two stories in mind, come back to our text here. And let's read verse 19 again. It says, when, when Joshua held out his hand, the men in ambush rose quickly from their position. They ran, entered the city, captured it, and immediately set it on fire. You see, the water in Exodus 14 knew to immediately obey. God's creation knows to obey its creator. And in chapter 8 of Joshua, it's not the water that is immediately responding. It's the people. It's the army. Because think about, think about this geographically, right? The, this ambush group is to the west of the city. The battle is happening to the east of the city and it's retreating. And God tells Joshua, all right, raise your javelin. Now, I'm not certain of this, but I don't think anybody in the ambush party had a set of binoculars on them. And there's a distance there. So I think, I think the text is telling us not that they could see him from where they were. I think that what the text is trying to communicate to us is that just as the water obeyed the staff and God's power in chapter 14, so the people are wholeheartedly and immediately obeying the power of God in chapter 8 of Joshua. God's power is at work to give the victory. It says they got up immediately, they responded, they paid attention, and they did exactly what God and what Joshua told them to do. So when we move forward after failure, we need to remember first that the penalty of our sin has been satisfied. We don't have to earn back our salvation. We have to remember that the promise of God is sure. He has promised us the victory over our enemies. And we have to remember that his power is sufficient for the path ahead. See, we do not depend on our own strength, lest we credit some kind of cunning strategy. The battle and the victory and the glory on that day did not belong to Israel. They did not belong to a good battle plan by Joshua. It belonged to the power of God. It is sufficient. 
And we who wrestle and battle with our own sin, with the enemy, we have a better Joshua. We have a Joshua who didn't just extend one hand and win a battle on a field somewhere. But we have a better Joshua who extended both of his hands, right? And he won a victory over sin and Satan and death, and he invites us now to enjoy the spoils of that victory. It's the power of God at work in us and for us and through us that sustains us in the battle and delivers the ultimate victory. William Grinnell, who's an old Puritan guy, he wrote a gigantic book on the armor of God. And he says this in there, the Christian is a born conqueror. The gates of hell shall not prevail against him. See, the battle for Ai shows us that Israel, they weren't passive. They went into the battle. They responded in obedience. They fought, but they did so in the strength that God provided and in the power of their creator. So we see in, in, in the end of, uh, in, in chapter eight, verses 28 and 29, we see a summary basically of the result of the battle. It says there that Joshua burned Ai and left it a permanent ruin. Still desolate today, he hung the body of the king of Ai on a tree until evening. And at sunset, Joshua commanded that they take his body down from the tree. They threw it down at the entrance of the city gate and put a large pile of rocks over it, which still remains today. So in verse 18, he extends his hand and the ambush happens and they take the city. But in verse 26, it says that he did not pull his hand back until the victory was complete. And the victory is complete when the king is vanquished and when the king is killed. And what we see at the, in these verses is that when the king is killed, he's thrown on the ground and he's covered with a pile of rocks. Now, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? The very end of chapter 7, we read about Achan. We read about a man who sinned against the Lord, who was part of Israel, sinned against the Lord, and was judged and buried under a pile of rocks. We have an Israelite who wasn't following the Lord and suffered under his judgment. We have a Canaanite who's doing the same thing. You see, all of us have sinned. Jew and Gentile alike are all under the wrath of God apart from Jesus Christ and they are judged accordingly. Ai and Bethel are defeated. And what's significant about this defeat there, the victory there for Israel is that, you know, Jericho is located a little bit on the fringe of the promised land, right? It's right it's across the river. It's kind of on the outskirts. Ai and Bethel are in the heart. And their victory at Ai is a bit of a planting of a flag in God's promised land to say, you know what, this, is a, this has been given to us. Not just this city, but this land. This is God's promise to us. This is our inheritance. Israel from this location will go on to conquer the northern part of the land. They'll go on to conquer the southern part of the land. But before they do that, Joshua, the book of Joshua, takes us on a little bit of a pause, a detour, so to speak. Not really a detour because the author has a purpose for this, but I want you to read with me verses 30 to 35. And let's see exactly what Israel does after this victory in the text. So verse 30, at that time, Joshua built an altar on Mount Ebal to the Lord and the God of Israel. 
just as Moses, the Lord's servant, had commanded the Israelites. He built it according to what is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones on which no iron tool has been used. Then they offered burnt offerings to the Lord and sacrificed fellowship offerings on it. There on the stones, Joshua copied the law of Moses, which he had written in the presence of the Israelites. All Israel, resident alien and citizen alike, with their elders, officers, and judges stood on either side of the Ark of the Lord's Covenant, facing the Levitical priests who carried it. Half of them were in front of Mount Gerizim and half in front of Mount Ebal, as Moses the Lord's servant had commanded earlier, concerning blessing the people of Israel. Afterward, Joshua read aloud all the words of the law, the blessings as well as the curses, according to all that is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses had commanded that Joshua did not read before the entire assembly of Israel, including women, the dependents, and the resident aliens who lived among them. All right, so what's happening here? So first of all, this is, this is a fulfillment of Deuteronomy 27 and the Lord's command and Moses' command in that text to, to perform this ceremony on Mount Ebal, Mount Gerizim. That's what's happening. It's Deuteronomy 27 happening. But the interesting thing for me and maybe for you is that these locations, Ebal and Gerizim, they are 20 miles away from Ai and Bethel. And they border a significant city in that time called Shechem. We don't hear anything about them having to conquer Shechem. We don't hear anything about the journey, these 20 miles, and encountering any other opposition. You see, the focus at this point is not on the military battle. The focus is on the worship service. So why does he put it, why does he put it here? In Shechem, Joseph's bones are buried. Shechem becomes a city of refuge in Israel. So for many reasons, the placement of this scene at this time in Joshua is a bit odd, but I want us to remember that Joshua is a book. And a book takes on a certain narrative sequencing in order to communicate a message. And I think there's some things that Joshua wants to communicate to us in this text today. So we've got six tribes on Mount Ebal. We've got six tribes on Mount Gerizim. We've got the altar of uncut stones, just as Moses instructed. They are following what Moses wrote and commanded to a T. They are on top of it. We continue to see them obeying exactly as the Lord instructed. And as they do, I think there's three truths that, that will encourage us today. First, they are, they are first looking back. Israel is renewing their covenant with God. They're renewing the covenant with God at an altar built in the heart of the promised land. Israel is, in fact, planting a flag in the heart of the promised land, but they're not doing it with a fortress, they're doing it with an altar. They're doing it with a worship service. They're offering burnt offerings where they give the whole animals to the Lord and they're offering it and they're worshiping with fellowship offerings where they declare that in fact, God is the God of Israel. He is their God and they are his people. See, responding to failure means we remember the covenant faithfulness of our God. And Israel takes a moment here to remember God's covenant faithfulness to them by renewing that covenant on these mountains. So they look back, but first they also are, are looking, they're looking at the word. They're looking in their current state and context. What we can't escape from in these, in these words, in these verses, 
is that God's word is at the center of Israel's life and worship. Repeatedly in these verses, they talk about all the words of the Lord, all the words of Moses. Joshua copied all the words of the Lord. Joshua read aloud all the words of the Lord, all the words of Moses. The word is everywhere. Responding to failure means we remember the covenant faithfulness of God, but then it also means that we place the word at the center of our life and worship. So when you fail, and all of us will fail at some point in the future, and you come to God and you repent of that sin, and, and you, you remember his covenant faithfulness, and you remember what he's accomplished for you on the cross, then you also have to then place the word at the center of your life and your worship. And you have to move forward saying, God, I'm going to do what you command. So Israel places the word at the center of their life and worship. But then lastly, they don't, they don't just look at the word. They look forward. There's a looking forward in this text for us. And I think it's because responding to failure means that, that we move forward engaging in the mission of God. We move forward engaging in the mission of God because sin has this ability to quench the Spirit's work in our life and keep us from fully following God and participating in the work of evangelism or anything else. Right, when you are wrestling with sin and when you are weighed down by the guilt of that sin, it naturally, supernaturally, keeps you from stepping into God's will and stepping into God's mission wholeheartedly. But when that is removed, you can move forward in freedom, serving the Lord. And what we see in these verses, in verse 33 and verse 35, is that there's a diversity of worship taking place. There's a diversity around that altar. See, a lot of times we come to the book of Joshua, we think, all right, you got this group called the Israelites, and they're everybody that is descended from Abraham, period. But we need to remember that in the Exodus, there is this mixed multitude that comes out with the Israelites, and that mixed multitude wandered with them for 40 years, and that mixed multitude is now crossing the Jordan with them, and that mixed multitude is around the altar with them. And it's so beautiful that in chapters 5 and 6 as we read about Jericho that there is one family that is mentioned as being a part of that mixed multitude now and that's Rahab think about Rahab her city has been destroyed her family has been preserved she is now grafted into this people that are not her people and they're moving on now for another battle and she's seen now the events of chapter 7 she's seen the judgment upon Achan and his family and Rahab is on the mountain. And Rahab is around the altar. And Rahab is a part of this group that is worshiping. See, the good news of the gospel is for all who place their faith in our covenant-keeping God. Our focus tends to be on Israel defeating these nations, but the reality is that there is a mixed multitude that Jew and Gentile alike are worshiping the Lord in the book of Joshua. And we are welcomed into that worship. So what does it look like to move forward? How should we as the people of God respond after confession and repentance? What does a renewed commitment to God look like? Well, a renewed commitment to the Lord means we remember that God's penalty has been satisfied at the cross. It's been satisfied at the cross. We remember that God's promise has been guaranteed in the empty tomb. We remember that God's power has been granted by the Spirit, and we remember that God's precepts have been given to us for a life of worship and mission. You see, we've all failed. We've all stumbled. We've all wrestled with sin. 
Maybe you walked in today feeling that defeat, but the Lord is compassionate and kind. The Lord is patient. The Lord has called us to repent and to turn and to walk in freedom. So if you're a Christian today, I want to challenge you and encourage you to fight the battle knowing Jesus paid it all for you. If you're a Christian today, I want to challenge and encourage you to fight the battle and the promise of the victory over Satan, sin, and death. If you're a Christian today, I want to challenge and encourage you to fight the battle and the power of the Spirit that dwells in you. And if you're a Christian today, I want to challenge and encourage you to fight the battle in worship and in mission. Looking forward to a day when every tribe and tongue and nation and people will gather around another worship service in another throne and declare that God is worthy, worthy, worthy and proclaim his glory forever and ever. But if you're not a Christian today, friend, this invitation is open to you. The Bible tells us that every person has fallen short. We've all failed to meet God's standard of perfection. But the weight of that failure and the condemnation that comes with it are only removed through Jesus Christ. If you are apart from Christ today, that weight remains. Christ came to bear our sin and our shame. And so today, let today be the day of your salvation. Turn from your sin and trust in him. You are welcome in the family. You're welcome in the family. His promise is for you. His power is for you. You see, there was room for Rahab around the altar in Joshua 8. And there is room for you today. We serve a good God. I want to invite you to stand. And I'm gonna, as you're standing, I'm going to read the first verse of a song that we're about to sing. Don't worry, I'm not going to lead us in that. It's called You've Already Won, and it may be a song that you're familiar with. Shane and Shane does a version of that if you're a big Shane and Shane people. But I want to read that for us as we close, and then I'm going to pray, and as I'm praying, Jimmy and the band are going to come and lead us. So here's verse one. There's peace that outlasts darkness, hope that's in the blood. There's future grace that's mine today that Jesus Christ has won. So I can face tomorrow, for tomorrow is in your hands. All I need, you will provide, just like you always have. Let's pray. Lord, it is true this morning that you provide every need we have. And our greatest need salvation from our sin. Our greatest need is you, Lord, and you've accomplished that through Christ. So we celebrate you today, and we rejoice in our great salvation today, not because of anything we've done, but by the power of God that is sufficient, by the promise of God that is sure, your penalty has been satisfied at the cross. And now we, as your people, delight to follow you, to respond to the call of your word, to live for Christ, to no longer live for ourselves, but to live for you, Lord. And I pray for those, maybe you're here today, who are, who are wrestling, who are struggling with the weight of their sin. They're, they're 
They're under the weight of that shame and that guilt. I pray that you would perhaps even press upon that this morning and bring them to you. That you would draw them to Christ, that they would come forward at the end of our service and talk with someone about what it looks like to have that weight, to have that guilt and that shame removed at the cross. God, you are worthy of our praise. And one day we look forward to being around that great gospel worship service where we will praise you forever and ever. And so today we lift our voices in anticipation of that day because we know that that day is sure because, Lord, you have already won. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. True.